Welcome to Slash Into Me. Slash Into Me, the only podcast that fuses horror movies and Dave Matthews Band. I'm Chris Rady. And I'm Pat Hoskin. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1995 Joe Chappelle movie, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And as always, we'll dip into some DMB when the time is right. Let's indulge. Man, episode five of Slashing to Me. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're going to be talking about Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, uh, a film that came six years after Halloween 5, uh, much anticipated. Uh, and much to talk about here, a lot to digest. A lot to digest, mainly that it's Paul Rudd's first film role credited, and as such, he gets an and introducing Paul Rudd. Or I think it's not and, it's just introducing Paul Stephen Rudd. <laughs> not technically his first film role because Clueless came out like three months before this. Oh, right. Okay, got it. But it filmed this filmed first, I think. Maybe filmed first and also his first starring role. He was kind of like more of a supporting thing in Clueless. I've never seen Clueless. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's great. He's he's kind of like the guy who's there all along who's great, but the girl can't see that he's great until the very end. Also because he's her stepbrother, but yeah. Okay. I just know that he's in it and Turk from Scrubs is also in it. <laughs> and Brecken Meyer is in it too. You should know that. Oh, nice. My former doppelganger. I now look more like... Uh, like a hell's angel than Brecken Meyer, <laughs> but I used to look like him. Maybe we should um, put up photos of ourselves at some point for this show, but not yet. Maybe ourselves in Michael Myers masks. I was thinking we should try to buy like the worst Michael Myers masks online that we can. So I think the best way to start off talking about this movie is by talking about the guy who wrote the movie. His name is Daniel Farrens. Uh, He had never written a movie prior to this. He was just a really, really big fan of the Halloween franchise, like kind of like a super fan before that was a thing. You know, I imagine there weren't like blogs and like forums of people discussing Halloween. Like it was probably still like underground and pretty analog. And this guy was like really into it. So he wrote this script Basically, he like sat down for three weeks. He looked at every Halloween film. He looked at the novelizations of the films, and he like made this crazy like police map, taking all the themes of the movie and all the different characters and all the things that had happened up until that point, and being like, "How can we rein this in and like write a plot that has something to do with all of these things, so that like the franchise can be whole again because it's gone in so many different directions?" And he wrote this movie. The intention behind this film was to make it good, and it wasn't just to make it another cash grab in the way that not so much four but certainly five seemed a little bit like a cash grab where they brought back michael myers in four they're like okay okay okay, we hear you we'll bring him back and then they have this awesome twist at the end of four and then they don't really follow through with it in five five comes out the next year it's very like uh we're just gonna do this psychic thing and um i guess that'll be that'll be what we do but this one yeah i mean i think like it could be a potentially bad sign that it took six years to get made because then it's like oh man that must have been like a not great 
production <laughs> of the film behind the scenes. Knowing that about Daniel Farrens is cool because he, he sounds like a dude who cared a lot. Although it should be noted up front that what we see on screen and it ends up being like kind of far removed from what he actually wrote and all this research that he put into it. Oh, wildly. He actually went to the writers, like the writing teams behind Halloween's four and five and was like, specifically five, and was like, hey guys, you threw me all these loose ends what am I supposed to do with them? Like, can you give me any sort of like hint as to maybe like this man in black or maybe this like weird runic tattoo that you see a couple different times? Like what's going on here? And they were like, I, I don't know. We were, <laughs> we were just trying to finish the movie. They gave him nothing. So he had to like come up with this whole plot. So he did all this research about like Anglo-Saxon druid runes and like, yeah, he wrote this crazy movie that had all these like really they're like culty elements yeah like very culty very pagan kind of stuff a lot of that stuff did get removed uh for like a bunch of different reasons but from what i can understand it seems like it mostly came down to this guy paul freeman but paul freeman was another producer on the movie while they were shooting it he made all these crazy decisions like the movie hadn't been finished yet as far as it's filming but he sent all the actors home and then, like, he just started, like, going rogue and taking over and, like, rewriting scenes on the spot and, like, making all these dialogue choices that weren't in the original script. And, like, he just, like, went nuts with it. The movie was put out under Miramax Dimension, which was a uh, mid-90s, back-in-the-day Weinstein joint. They're, like, Hollywood guys. Like, you can tell that they know, like, they're like, all right, yeah, that we need to we need to trim this. We need to make this flashier. We need to, you know, color correct this. We need to bring in this like mid '90s grunge soundtrack. Like you can just tell, like the, <laughs> you can tell that the Dimension guys, like the Weinstein's, the Miramax guys, are very like that. Uh, which I guess it should be said up front, like fuck those guys, specifically Harvey, forever, fuck him forever. Um, yeah, he's a piece of shit. But uh, you can tell that they know how to like package a movie, and they had there. This is like right after Pulp Fiction. It's like they were finding such good success with what they were doing. So you could just see that. You know, in spite of those guys being assholes, like, it shows. I mean, the movie looks and feels good. I, you texted me after you watched it. You were like, man, the first two-thirds of that movie was, like, actually really gripping and really good, and it is. Like, it feels like a real movie, and it has elements of suspense, and you feel the tension, and, like, you're invested from the get-go, I would say. There's, like, some dumb little dialogue things or some dumb choices that are made that kind of take you out of it, but, like, it's pretty good. I mean, but then it continues, you know? What did you find about it that was good? Because, for me, Michael and Dr. Loomis actually have no scenes together in the entire movie, which I didn't realize until the end, and I was, like, reading about it. Um, I actually liked that. I liked how subtle it was. I, like, because I think in 4 and 5 specifically, and I guess in 2, it becomes such a thing where like Loomis is going to warn everybody. He's going to be this crazy Van Helsing figure. He's going to be screaming on the streets to no one. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, he's going to come face to face with Michael. And then like maybe he'll set himself on fire like in number two. Maybe he'll get stabbed like at the end of five and seemingly die. But then in this one, he's actually not dead. Like maybe those things will happen. But in this one, like they do have an encounter at the end. It's implied, but we don't actually see it. So I actually really liked that about it. But what, what were some of the stuff that you liked about it when you watched it that you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see this. Yeah. First of all, I loved Loomis. Uh, I always loved Loomis. But particularly in this movie, I thought like, like you said, they toned him down like he's retired. You know, he's like sitting in his like nice house kind of just like or he was writing his memoir 
and uh and he's like broken and gray and yeah but he's also like happy you know like he's kind of a little more jolly he's very much older like he sounds older and he looks older yeah i thought it was good that they didn't like keep him sort of like a crazed persona because you have that in Paul Rudd's character. He's like the person in Haddonfield who for so many years like grew up and like can't shake this thing. But Loomis, after all the shit he's gone through, it seems like he's been able to like take it easy and just like be retired. And Paul Rudd who plays Tommy Doyle, who Laurie Strode babysits in the first movie. Yeah, exactly. Paul Rudd. (laughs) I mean, it's really fun to watch young Paul Rudd. It's fun to watch like young famous actors do anything in the movie he puts on this like weird sort of voice did you notice that yeah it's, it's almost like some weird accent that i can't place well i can't totally place it but the closest thing i came to was he sounds like hayden christensen in the star wars movies <laughs> like like specifically when when he's like sand it's coarse and it's gritty and it gets everywhere. Like it's this weird, like over dramatic. And I guess like that's what he was going for. Like he was just trying to be like a total weirdo who like nobody knows and is like kind of antisocial because he's been up in his room like spinning tapes of this like DJ for 20 years and like (laughs) yeah and he also like because he did romeo and julia i think the year after that and i mean i'm certain that when he filmed halloween six he did not know he was going to be romeo and julia i'm sure that came after clueless but like he does sort of a a shakespearean affect in romeo and juliet obviously as a lot of those actors do this one in halloween sort of seems like slightly that but also slightly somebody who was told or like who was given direction just be weirder and he's like oh, okay but he's also young and he's like doing his best yeah. but so he just kind of shakes his head a lot <laughs> and then sometimes he'll he'll like elongate vowels for no reason i was only eight years old when i saw him but i was one of the lucky ones i survived there michael's you. work isn't done in haddonfield and soon very soon he'll come home to kill again but this time I'll be ready. But another thing I really liked about it kind of from the get-go is something that like the past couple movies haven't done is that I feel like right away they gave you new characters and gave you reasons to care about them. Yes. Oh, totally. Totally. Yes. We've we've talked about how these past few movies like really do a good job at just like putting characters on the screen so that they can be killed. Like you have no investment in what they have to say or what they have to do. But here, like there's like this kind of offshoot second cousin family of the Strodes. And like you see a more grown up version of Jamie and you, you know, you see Tommy Doyle again. And like you have this, uh, this guy, Wynn, who plays a big part in it and who like is in the first Halloween movie is not the same actor. I didn't actually realize that until I looked it up later. That's another thing of like Daniel Farren's like knows his shit and he goes to the to good lengths to make sure that it's like accurate and correct in there. The Strode family dynamic is great. And also like that makes you kind of care. It's not like this dramatic Melrose Place type thing that we were talking about last time where it's not really melodramatic. It's actually like, oh, this father is like a huge piece of shit and he's like very abusive. I was also reading that there's some fan theories that he actually is the father of Danny and that he like sexually molested his daughter. And like, so anyway, uh, I don't know about all that. That was that was read into his character. He does suck in a way where you're excited for him to be killed later. Um, but also like him being bad and being an asshole and abusive uh, helps to color the character of Kara so much. That actress, Marianne Hagen is her name. She's like tremendous, I think. She has these like amazing eyes 
that she conveys like so much of the sadness, which is cool. And you can tell like there's there's a lot of picking up that Laurie Strode thread in her. Speaking of the wine scenes, this is how much they suck. Apparently they didn't like her throughout the whole shooting of the film and they would complain about her looks and say she was too skinny and that she, her chin was too pointy. Those guys can get fucked, but but she's great. I want to correct the record. I think in a la- one of our last episodes, I stated that after Halloween 4, I had never seen a Halloween movie. I may have said that in an episode or I may have just said it to you, uh, but watching this movie and specifically the scene where Danny in the beginning holds a knife up to his grandfather, this asshole, I was like, wait, I've seen this. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized like, you know, however long into this movie that I had seen it before. And so it was really fun. I didn't remember the end. So it was cool to watch it again. But um, there were like key scenes that I definitely remembered. I don't know if I saw it on TV or what, which would be interesting if I did, because the TV version is pretty different than the theatrical version. Right. Um, which is a lot how a lot of these films go because they tried to like, you know, make bank on TV stuff. They were adding in different scenes and shit. But that's funny because yeah. I, I definitely saw the ending of this film, I think probably on TV. Um, so I knew the end, but I had not seen the other, the rest of the film. And so coming into that, I'd never seen the opening before. I was watching it with Haley and she was like, this is some Rosemary's Baby shit. Like when we, <laughs> when it first opened. <laughs> Um, and it is, it reminded me kind of like of the movie, the crow, which I used to love a lot. It's like really Gothic. I also like how it's the last pre scream Halloween because scream comes out in 96. Mm. And I think like when we get to H2O in the next episode, I think there's some intentional choices in that movie that make it kind of an attempt to maybe cash in on the success, the kind of renewed success of the, the self-aware slasher film that scream was mm, but this one is totally. like right before that so you can tell like it's of the same era and it, it looks kind of similar hello we want a child who is this Something I loved also was the fact that like the general response of Haddonfield and its citizens seemed way more realistic this time around. Like before we had complained about this weird sort of like uprising of hillbillies and their guns and then like people like maybe not caring enough about their kids being killed and like Ben Tramers and things like that. But now it's interesting. They they decided to pick up the storyline that they like refused before, which was Haddonfield, Illinois has officially banned Halloween. It can't be celebrated, which is a really cool direction to take it. Yeah. And all of the people are kind of like, you know what? We're sick of this. Like Michael Myers hasn't been here in forever. Like these things happen to people that I don't even remember. And it's been so long, like we need to move on. And it's kind of funny since it's been six years since anyone had seen a Halloween movie. Like that's a really, I, I think, apt way to have the people of the town look at it because like terrible things happen all the time and how quick do people move on like that was something that also was considered in john carpenter's potential reboot of the series in when they were going to do halloween 4 and bring michael myers back remember he wrote this really cerebral script about how haddonfield had banned halloween and all this like i would want to see that movie and this film has some of those elements which is cool and you can tell daniel farron's i think was probably in tune with that of like if this shock jock who was like a howard stern type you know talking about well michael myers he's like jeffrey dahmer would you fuck michael myers oh yeah and like <laughs> you know <laughs> that that to me like that 
that's realistic. Did you know they tried to get Howard Stern for the role? Oh, I, I think I did read that as well. I think it was probably better that he didn't do it. He only didn't do it because he was filming private parts at the time. Oh, <laughs> his own movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I don't like about Michael Myers in this movie is that he is almost not even... Okay, so this is complicated because I was j just about to say he almost isn't even a character and that's good, right? Because that was the, the whole thing at the beginning. It was like, he's the absence of character. He has nothing except like he's more of a... Uh, of like a plot he's more of like an organization at this point yeah <laughs> yeah it's like sort of how i <laughs> there's like people discuss metallica not being a real band anymore <laughs> but it's actually like a board of directors it's a company <laughs> that's like you know we have to make sure that we make the right decision for our stockholders and that's kind of how i feel about michael myers he's the fucking errand boy of this cult and i'm like i don't know about all that like that that's fundamentally changing the character he kind of turns into like leatherface from texas chainsaw massacre and that there's like this group of people who are making collective decisions for one reason or another and he's like the muscle it, it, it makes so much less sense than at the end when dr wayne is performing surgery for some reason and there's this whole room because <laughs> like all the while that Salwain is being resurrected like a hospital still has to operate <laughs> <laughs> right. and there's this whole room full of doctors and surgeons and techs and michael myers just goes in and murders them all in ridiculous ways for yeah. no reason like it's and it's, it's it's almost like no attention is given to the fact that he has apparently snapped and gone off the leash you know so to speak he just does it i feel like that must have been one of those decisions toward the end by like some producer being like oh man like we have two more days to shoot we haven't killed enough people let's just kill like 10 in like two minutes <laughs> like <laughs> yeah and the film is only like 88 minutes long which is it's absurd like I, I don't know like he he is still killing his bloodline he's driven by this curse apparently a curse but it's also like a curse that's been intentionally put upon him by these like new wave druids through the use of thorn which is this runic symbol it kind of acts like in the way that the pieces of stonehenge did in halloween 3 like it has this like un uncanny ability to do something when it's painted on your chest in blood yeah or <laughs> yeah. i guess well actually this is like a good point for me for my sake and for the listener's sake try to in like 60 seconds or less break down the plot of this movie for me yeah okay um let's start the clock so Haddonfield has not seen Michael Myers since he got broken out of this uh, jail or actually he's presumed dead I guess because of the jail explosion as is his niece Jamie Lloyd but actually Jamie's been kidnapped by a cult that Michael has ties to and then she has a baby at 15 yeah <laughs> right at, as a teen and then um, she escapes but then she actually doesn't but then the baby ends up with Tommy Doyle who has been obsessed with Michael and then Dr. Wynn tries to recruit uh, Dr. Loomis to come back for some reason that's never really clear. And he doesn't really want to, but then people start dying as they always do. So he comes back, yada, yada, yada. There's some Strode descendants living in the Myers house. Then they all come together. A lot of people get killed. And uh, at the end, Paul Rudd beats the shit out of Michael Myers with a pipe until his face is like bleeding green shit. <laughs> I, I wasn't clear on that. Was that the stuff that he had earlier injected into his back? Or is it supposed to be implied that Michael Myers has like 
green like formaldehyde blood <laughs> i think it was the stuff that was injected because we know that he has uh red blood because we, when laurie shoots his eyes out at number two we see it yeah, he cries bl- blood which is like a sweet gu- guns and roses song or something i think that's the plot i don't know there's some middle shit but you know no 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 i think i think he did a good job but like you know similarly to halloween three with connell cochran and silver shamrock my big question is like What's the end goal? Yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, okay, but I, I know we're, I know we're, we're saving a lot of talk about the end for the end of this episode for good reason, but I think it's, I don't think we can continue this conversation without this important piece of knowledge, which is that when the first version of the film was screened uh, to an audience of, quote, mostly 14-year-old boys, as Marianne Hagen, the actress who played Kara, said, uh, they hated it because the end of the first version of this film was very different, and it went right back to the cult stuff. They were like, Michael didn't kill enough people. There wasn't enough violence, you know, and so they literally reshot a lot of the movie, including the entire ending, uh, without Donald Pleasance because he had died, and that's why we have this kind of slapdash thing where it's like, oh, I guess we've been drugged. Uh, oh, but they took Kara or Kara, whatever her name is. They didn't do anything with her. They just put her in a room for some reason. And then Paul Rudd gets her out of the room. Michael Myers chases them. And then he kills a whole room of surgeons. And then the movie is over. Like, that that makes so much less sense. And it kind of leaves all those threads dangling. What, was Danny also possessed? Like, what's the deal? But the original ending elucidates more. Yeah, or like, what was Loomis's business that he had to deal with? Yeah, and the the original ending, I think, in Farron's script is much more, it's much more a singular vision as opposed to a focus group end product with input from the producers about like how to make a slicker movie that's going to perform better at the box office, which didn't work, by the way. And this movie, I think, was like abysmally received. And I think people had even fewer nice things to say about this movie because it was the third film since they brought Michael back. And I think people were tired of the shtick. Whereas I think a lot of the film is better than four and five, as we said. Yeah, like they build this amazing groundwork and they like plant these roots and they develop really quickly and then everything just unravels so fast. I think it it lost me when Mrs. Blankenship turns out to be one of the people in the cult. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. But then again, if that had been picked up at the end, and not just kind of used as almost a laugh line, I think I would have had a different feeling. I need to back up a little bit. Like, I'm still unclear. So the druids and, like, the man in black, who we haven't stated, spoiler alert, is Wynn, is this guy who was good friends with Dr. Loomis, uh, has been the whole time, uh, are trying to get Jamie, now deceased, Jamie's baby, because that's the final Myers bloodline but do they want the baby because they want to kill it or do they want the baby because they want to like embed it with this power of great evil what are they trying to do with the baby first of all yeah so that's a great question i was a little confused about this but i think my takeaway is they have this baby who is jamie's baby and who is implied in the producer's cut to be also michael's baby speaking of this incest i think the goal is you sacrifice the baby because I think the origins of Samhain are, you know, as stated by Connell Cochran in number three, there was human sacrifice, there was animal sacrifice. I think you kill the baby in keeping with the carving of the thorn symbol on his stomach at the beginning of the movie. 
That ends the bloodline, and in theory, that should lift the curse off of Michael. However, they have Danny there, who is Kara's son, who is not related to Michael, but he is in the Strode family because of that was the family Laurie was adopted into. I think like the curse would be transferred onto him, and then as well, and he already kind of shows signs of being like another version of Jamie in that he like hears voices and kind of gets like quasi possessed a couple times throughout the movie. And he gets knife happy and all that stuff. So I think like it would follow logically that that would be what happens. <laughs> I don't know if you could say logically. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So if that's the end goal, then my follow up question which is like reaching right toward the end of the movie is when Kara and Tommy come face to face with Michael Myers. They're in that sort of like, I guess it's the hospital, right? Yeah, they're in the hospital. You see like a baby in a jar and then underneath the baby in the sort of glass case that looks like it's kind of like floating in liquid, you see a small like plaque and the plaque has what looks to be like a DNA double helix and some sort of like nondescript language that maybe is runes or <laughs> like something else. And they, and they make no mention of it. So that seems to imply that like not only are the Druids trying to sacrifice children to bring about this great evil, but they're also like harvesting children for their DNA. Does that sound right? I think either that or they're test tube babies and maybe that was trying to point to the potential origin of Jamie's baby being a test tube baby so that they could have... Oh, like that was their way... I don't know. Like what? Well, that was so crazy. And like uh, Kara has this crazy look on her face, like this big sort of realization, but I didn't know what the hell to make of that. Tommy? Tommy? So we should say this movie also features Alan Howarth, who had been doing the music uh, since Halloween 2 uh, throughout all the movies. And he does the music again in this movie. And it starts out like classic Halloween, like that heavy synth and like the same sort of themes. The John Carpenter theme is in there. But then like maybe three quarters of the way into the movie, it completely changes and you'd have no more of those themes. You have like this crazy like almost Metallica-like power chord guitar with drums, which is completely new for any of the Halloween movies. And it's like this like, and and there's like weird sorts of like screams, like human screams as part of the musical theme. And then not to mention what you said before, they used this band Brother Kane, (laughs) who's like the worst 90s band ever. I'd never heard of them, but I was listening to them moments before this started and it sucks so bad (laughs) it's like it's like the worst iteration of like bands trying to be like pearl jam meets like jane's addiction but like just oh god it's so awful
And, and all you have to do to make good music in the Halloween films is just use the fucking music that's there. Like, it's the most iconic horror music. It's literally there for you. And the least you can do... You've been doing do... it for over 10 years before that. Like... Yeah, it was almost 20 at that point. Like, the least you can do... Oh, yeah, shit. ...is not fuck that up and make it so that it, the movie is automatically dated because it has this, you know, grunge soundtrack. Like, it, it's bad. And it has these guitar squeals, like... <laughs> Like when they're running down the hall, it's just, it's, it, yeah. And in order to transition from certain scenes that would make no sense if we just hard cut to them, we'll put these crazy flashes of yeah, yeah. Michael stabbing or, um, or at this time he's bleeding from the eyes. Yeah, it's really epileptic. Like <laughs> the scenes are like, doo, 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 doo. you feel like you're in like a, a haunted house as opposed to watching a movie. That stuff is very clearly added in post-production to cover up, um, errors or to cover up questionable decisions about like well what if we splice this like in the beginning like when jamie's still alive and she's running from michael myers with the baby and they're in that barn and there's like the lightning flash and you see michael myers kind of like show up in the background like it's so good like that's the stuff that has made them good from the get-go and those scenes are so well done and then like it's kind of like two different movies like it's so weird there's all sorts of other cool little like homages too which were all written in by this guy daniel ferens there's the scene where paul rudd's character runs into danny and danny drops the pumpkin and that's like instantly like the the first movie when tommy doyle drops the pumpkin when he's being bullied by those kids and like there's sort of a, a sly one when uh kara's mom gets murdered and she's outside among all the linens being hung up on the laundry line the clotheslines oh yeah yeah the linens yeah and that's awesome and like she gets stabbed and it's like her blood sort of splatters on the white linens and it's such a like a bracing image but it's not over the top like like you have that like this cool tense really well done scene and then (laughs) and then you have a man stabbed through the chest into like an electrical outlet so that he is filled with electricity and eventually his head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the most satisfying kill of the movie just because the, who that happens to is the drunk, abusive dad. Uh, but what is your favorite kill of the movie? That's tough. I, I guess it would have to be those linens. I mean, that's um, because I just really liked that they did that. Like another good thing about this movie is that you know, they show the Myers house. It's not the original Myers house because this movie, again, was shot in Salt Lake City as opposed to Pasadena, California. And it's not even the Myers house from number five either. <laughs> it's a totally different It's not one. the Myers house from number five, which is like that giant Victorian. But this at least does a good job. Like they picked a square white house and they yeah. had like kind of similar layout on the inside. And so it was cool that the Myers house was back in commission after it had been this sort of like dilapidated ghost house for so long and so the fact that michael's able to because this is ostensibly the first murder he's done in his house since he killed his sister so that's kind of big well and like it would have been loomis if loomis had died at the end of five which we it looked like he did but he didn't because he does michael does stab loomis at the end of five in his own house but he doesn't die my favorite kill is the strode brother i think his name's tim tim and his girlfriend kind of replicate the bob and linda situation of the first movie as well they have sex and then he takes a shower he is actually murdered in the bathroom 
And this one's actually pretty creepy. Like it's hard to, when you're going for, what, what's a way that we haven't done a kill before? We haven't electrocuted a guy until his head explodes. We, we electrocuted a guy, but we didn't do it until his head explodes. So uh, when you're thinking like that, it's, it's like, it's very easy for the creepy factor to take a side step to like the, the novelty. But I liked right. his because his was pretty straightforward. Michael just grabs him by the hair. He slits his throat and then he makes him watch himself bleed out in the mirror, which I thought was pretty good. Although at the same time, I feel like it, it bears mentioning that the potential final kill of this movie is Dr. Loomis. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't know. Um, there's just like a Loomis scream at the end and that could mean any number of things, but that could mean that he's dead. And as we know, as everybody knows who watched the movie because the movie's in his memory, he will not return because Donald Pleasance was no more, unfortunately. Right. And so it's like, it, yeah, it's left up to you to decide, but it seems like he may have stuck around intentionally to kind of like go down with the ship, so to speak. And he, right. when he says like, I've got a couple things left to do or I've got an unfinished business or whatever. And then the next thing you see is Michael's mask laying on the ground and Lewis's screams like it, it's fucked up. It's like, <laughs> it's really scary and I like it. And it's, um, it's really haunting. And I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. That that's like a pretty good way to play it. And that very significantly does not happen in the producer's cut when I think it's terrible. So yeah. One thing I just want to mention real quick. So Tommy Doyle, Paul Rudd's character is this like troubled guy and he's been pouring over all these things for years and years and waiting for Michael Myers to return so that he can rid the world of this evil forever. When he's kind of explaining all of this to Kara when they're locked up in his bedroom, the bedroom that he used a telescope to watch her in her underwear, he <laughs> he shows her this like, I guess like PowerPoint presentation <laughs> he has on the symbol Thorn. And it's just like one of those amazing scenes where like, Back then, they would have had no idea, but it's like such a laughable representation of like <laughs> right. computer technology and the internet and like the Thorn logo is just kind of like bouncing around the screen, almost like that scene in the office where they're all waiting for the screensaver to hit the corner, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get over it. Like I love, I think the other day we were talking about the movie Hackers, which I've seen. I don't think you've seen, but it's like- Have not seen it. It's like an entire feature like film of just- that like a very misrepresented scary idea of what people thought the internet was and like, it's just really funny yeah like, it dates the movie as much as the shitty grunge music does brother kane you can you can use their name I, i'd rather not but yeah <laughs> we'll get them on the show we'll be on next week <laughs> i drink for every drop of you is sacred every drop i drink you up the way you laugh, eyes of a child lean on me, you fill me up, you make me love. So unconditionally generous to me, you give me love and break my heart. Okay, so I I want to because you're you're the one who brought up the Lily White sessions for this, so I and I think that's fantastic. I I'm kicking myself for not coming up with that to talk about myself however i want to know how much you know about the story of the lily white sessions so what i understand about the lily white sessions is that dave matthews band went into the studio with a certain producer who i believe was named lily white again with steve lily white who had produced their first three albums they recorded a bunch of rough cut sessions of songs that they wanted on the album and then ultimately decided they weren't happy with how it came out or like something went wrong with the production and they were just like 
you know what, we're going to scrap this for now. A bunch of these songs we can deal with later. The songs were taking a little bit of a dark turn, and Dave would like call it his sad bastard music. And they did later eventually all get re-recorded, or not all of them, but some of them got re-recorded for the album uh, Busted Stuff, which is a pretty beloved Dave album. And it's like seen by Dave fans as kind of like a return to their roots after they did like some shitty poppy albums like every day. So they, so Dave went away with this guy, Glenn Ballard, who is a producer who had produced Jagged Little Pill for Alanis Morissette. He's gone on to produce like Katy Perry albums and like really slick sounding pop albums. And yeah, that they made every day, like they wrote every day together. But yeah, like the, there's not much horns on it. There's not really too much violin. It's, it sounds like an atypical album. Somebody managed to get a hold of the Lily White Sessions these unfinished recordings, these kind of like rough cut versions of some of these songs and a couple other songs that had never been released. And they leaked them, I presume, on like Napster. This is great. I don't know how, we use the word apocryphal a lot, but I don't know how apocryphal this is. The fan community story goes that there was this guy who is a Bonaventure graduate, and this is true. No way. St. Bonaventure University, which is the uh, esteemed educational facility that both you and I attended for undergraduate studies. This guy did too. I forget his name. I DM'd him on LinkedIn once about this, and he responded actually, which was very nice. But he was at on a ski trip in Aspen or Denver or something. He was either there with people who knew people who knew people who knew one of the guys from DMB, I don't know if it was Boyd or if it was... Oh, it might have been Stefan Lassard, the bass player. Because he's kind of like an X-Games looking bro. So I think he probably skis a lot. They went to his his ski chalet or something. And he played them this music that they had been working on. Because the guy was like, oh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I don't know if he like stole the shit or what happened. But somehow he got a copy of it. I don't know if they gave him one or what. But yeah, he got a copy of it. He did not leak it himself. But he, I think, entrusted it to like a friend... And this friend, maybe it was one of his friends from like an online community uh, whose name was Craig Knapp, I believe. And Craig Knapp was the lead singer of a DMB tribute band. Craig posted like a public message or maybe he emailed what he thought was an email address for Dave or for somebody on their team being like, listen, I have these recordings. I think that all the fans would love to hear them, um, but I will not leak them if you say not to. Like I, I won't, I'll respect those wishes. And then somebody like faked the email address and wrote back to him and was like you have our blessing just get it out there <laughs> and so he did so this guy leaked what the, what became some some hack yeah like uh everything just comes down to hackers and like trolls it comes yeah like trolls before trolls existed these recordings got out there and they they came to be known as the lily white sessions and yeah like fans fucking loved it because it was better than every day and they loved it a lot more than every day many dave fans think to this day that those rough cut sessions are the best recordings that Dave has ever put out and or not put out. Eventually, and very wisely, and, and this is a very savvy move, they started to play a lot of those songs live on the tour for every day, and the fans like went apeshit because these songs were really good. So in the summer of 2001, they were playing a lot of these songs, and that kind of leads to them capitalizing on it and being like, oh, okay, so we should go in the studio, we should tighten these up. And um, that's what became Busted Stuff. It was, we're going to rework most of these songs with a couple of new songs, including Where Are You Going, which as featured on the Mr. Deed soundtrack, of course. Where Are You Going is on Busted Stuff? Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100% is. Wow. I didn't realize that. Dude, come on. This is fucking slashing to me. I think I was confusing Where Are You Going with The Space Between. Oh, that's on every day. Yeah. 
Why did you think that that was appropriate to talk about for this movie? Halloween 6 has this cult following producer's cut that may or may not be better than the theatrical cut, but in a very similar fashion, it was kind of released. Like somebody managed to get their hands on these extra scenes and that alternate ending and fans would even go out of their way to like take this footage and make fan edits so that they could have like a different version of the movie as opposed to what came out in theaters. That became so popular, I guess like online or whatever, the creators of the movie eventually did like a DVD or a Blu-ray release of what's now known as the producer's cut. So you can now have it, like you can buy it officially. So the Lily White Sessions is DMB's version of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, the producer's cut, basically. Yeah, well, I guess like the Lily White Sessions is to busted stuff what the producer's cut is to the theatrical cut, which like doesn't, (laughs) if you say it like that, doesn't quite hold up because like busted stuff is a really good album and this movie's not, but. (laughs) (laughs) But the Lily White Sessions, you're right though. Like fans love it. They think it's among like the best songs that the band ever had. That's partly why this guy Riley Walker, who's a really incredible musician and guitar player and singer songwriter, he has recorded an entire covers album of the Lily White Sessions. He's done a song for song cover album. One of them is the first track, Busted Stuff. His cover of it is very freewheeling, jazzy uh, and moody and that's kind of what a lot of his like recent output has been. So I th- just think it's really cool. And it's not ironic or anything. Like he's he's talked a lot about who he like genuinely loves. Dave, you know, he, he does his regular music sound like that? No, but he can like actually kind of do it in his own style. It's worth mentioning that his music is really heady. It's not easy listening by any means. Like you wouldn't hear it necessarily playing in like a Starbucks because it's like kind of intense and like often dark. There's probably not a lot of overlap between fans of Riley Walker and fans like hardcore fans of him and hardcore fans of Dave Matthews band. And that's his point. I don't need to be like a sandal wearing beach bum in order to appreciate this music and recognize that Dave Matthews is like a genius of a songwriter. You sent me an interview that he did that was like a promotional thing when he first sort of announced that he was releasing this covers album. And he used this phrase that like totally stuck with me that he said that Dave Matthews and Dave Matthews band music is like, whether we like it or not, is part of the American lexicon. And that's so cool, like, because it's true. Like, there are so many people who like really hate Dave and really hate things like Dave. That doesn't mean they don't exist and that they're not important. Not enough. And the song we chose for today is one of the most popular Dave Matthews Band songs that exists and that will always exist. Uh, It's called Gray Street, originally recorded during these Lily White sessions and then ultimately put out on the album Busted Stuff, like we mentioned. What's it about? It is the third of three songs in this Julia Gray trilogy as kind of dreamed up by fans. As a reminder, Julia Gray being his former girlfriend. Yes, he proposed to her three times. She said no all three times. Before he did that, he wrote the song I'll Back You Up, which is on their first release, Remember Two Things. And then in his anger, 
about being rejected, he wrote the song Halloween, which we talked about in the first episode. And some people see this song, Gray Street, as kind of a continuation of that because, first of all, it's called Gray Street, so people thought that there was some significance to the name. But also the character of the song is a woman who seems to be dealing with pain and things that she can't let go of. I love this song. I know you love this song. Uh, but I listened to the lyrics like, I actually never knew that it was about this woman, Julia Gray. I never knew anything about that. But I listened to it again and listened to the lyrics like trying to sort of like hear themes of Halloween and specifically of Halloween 6. And I felt like the woman in the song was very reminiscent of Kara Strode in that she is living in this house that's kind of like plagued with this dark history and she has this like terrible home life with her shitty dad and she's a single mother and then all these other horrible things start happening to her and she's like caught up in the middle of like mayhem we never actually know the name of the street that the Myers house is on certainly it is a street that has seen dark things and they're living in the former Myers house and like so she's kind of living on this like darkened plagued cursed street it's certainly not as big as like the song that is the namesake of this podcast which we won't mention it'll be a little insider if you can figure it out good for you (laughs) we'll never talk about that song on this show probably not but if you think you know what it is uh send us a message you can email us at slash into me at gmail.com let us know if you think you know the name of that song we'll send you like a promotional button or maybe a, maybe a patch or something i'll give you a hint though because uh my friend sarah texted me and said that she had listened to the show so shout out sarah thank you for listening she said that um a great film to pair with that song uh would be the movie teeth do you know what the movie teeth is about i sure do yeah, so. Do you want me to talk about it? No, no, no. That, that's a hint, though. She says nothing of what she thinks. She just goes stumbling through her memories. Staring out onto Gray Street. But she thinks, hey. Slash Into Me is made by me, Pat Hoskin. Me, Chris Rady. Please subscribe to our page on iTunes. You can leave us a cool review. And then hit us up on socials. We're at Slash Into Me on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook as well. All these episodes live on SoundCloud. So you can check that out. You can share it with your friends. Shoot us a message. Let us know what your favorite Paul Rudd movie is. We appreciate everybody who's been listening. Slap the bass, man. <laughs> <laughs>